Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage, or in these troubled times, over the internet. At Profile Theater, we spend an entire season exploring the work of a given playwright. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. This month on Satellite, we've got quite a show for you. We'll be talking about the world of Paula Vogel's Hot and Throbbing, either a tragic comedy or a poignantly comic tragedy, depending on how you look at it. And we're going to talk to Eleanor O'Brien, sex-positive prophetess of Dance Naked Productions and a fine actress in her own right, reprising a role she played years before. We'll also meet Cayenne, former stripper turned therapist turned mother, telling us about what she learned about life and men from the sex industry. And finally, Low Steel. Portland's blossoming superstar, singer, actor, poet, and composer for Hot and Throbbing. Are you ready? Prepare for liftoff. This is Satellite Beyond the Page. First up, Eleanor O'Brien. I have one of my favorite people on the planet. Her name is Eleanor Kathleen O'Brien. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you, Bobby. Um, so, Eleanor, the listeners might know you, some will certainly know you, but a lot of them won't. So if you could tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, where you're going. Sure. So I'm the artistic director for Dance Naked Productions. Uh, I make theater about sexuality, and I've been doing that for about 15 years. Uh, that primarily is me touring solo shows and occasionally doing ensemble productions when I'm here in town. My background is that I grew up in Portland doing theater from a young age. Uh, my mother is an actress in town as well, Van O'Brien, and she have, and I have been doing shows together since I was a wee child. Uh, some profile regulars will remember will remember us from such things as uh, Lay Me Down Easy and Well. And if you've been a longtime profile subscriber, you may remember me from the Heidi Chronicles from the Wendy Wasserstein season about, gosh, over 10 years ago. I used to do a lot more Portland theater than I do now. Mostly I do my own stuff. I take it on tour and I um, develop new work. But Last year, I decided to do a show with Profile because my mother had already been cast, and I I wanted to do that show with her, which was well, because it was a play about a mother and a daughter, and it turned out Allison Mickelson had already been cast as the daughter, uh, and I got cast as an ensemble member, which at first I was like, eh, ensemble, but then it turned out to be great, and I had the best time, and... Uh, I became really good friends with Allison Mickelson, and it all worked out beautifully. That's so funny, though, because uh, for years I have thought that you were one of Portland's most underrated talents. Because um, I think you're a super sensitive and intelligent actor uh, who's very versatile. And part of it was your own kind of self-exile. Like, yeah. you just weren't doing straight theater for a long time. Yeah. Um, and you weren't auditioning, and nobody knew who you were. And it would come up over and over again that there was this... Uh, super talented actress, this resource out there that wasn't being used. Um, why did you feel like you had to separate the two and why did you give so much commitment to the One Direction? Well, I grew up doing regular theater and that is my undergrad. That's my master's. I thought I was going to be a Shakespearean actor and do regional theater and do Broadway. That was my trajectory. And what happened when I got out of grad school is I moved to New York and I found that you have to really be hungry in New York and you had to really care about who was who in the zoo and be on top of all of the auditions and getting to know casting directors. And I really tried for about two years. And the truth was, I didn't care that much. I would 
I, you know, I'd go to auditions for, you know, a bit part and something at Lincoln Center or whatever. And I knew that it was about you have to work your way up to la- the ladder and all that. But there is something very disheartening to me about being in a show, you know, for weeks that you're you don't care that much about or the show itself. It's not lighting the world on fire. It's not really changing anything. And when I did my first solo show that was called GGG Dominatrix for Dummies. I remember it. That really shifted something in me. And what it shifted was that I could make a statement about my beliefs about the world through my art. And I had never been able to do that in regular theater. And it it, it was it was something that was so delicious and profound. And it it made me feel like I was no longer just a cog in somebody else's vision, but that I could create my own vision and I could literally change people's lives with a production. And then that became it became my mission. You know, you know, it's been um, super exciting as a longtime friend and just watching you do it is, is uh, how much you had a vision of the world that you thought would be a better place for everybody mm-hmm. and how much you have pursued that, yeah, you know, and you, and you have not compromised. And I know for you, sometimes I, I feel like, and this is true of anybody who is, um, I was going to say religious. Um, that's not really your thing. Um, but, but I feel like you have a vision of the world and, and that is an ideal. Yeah. And you were trying to reach that. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you always have. <laughs> and sometimes and sometimes that costs you mm-hmm. like personally, but you still keep striving to do that. And I feel like you found a whole audience uh, of people who all were like picking up what you were laying down and they all needed it as well. It's really true. It's really interesting because my audience is not the typical theater going audience right. in Portland. It's a completely different demographic. Mm-hmm. Many of them are like don't ever see anything else but what I do. And I think that speaks to people who want to they want the the theater that they see to be familiar and relatable. These people are the kind who would go to Shakespeare and be like, "Oh, that's nice." And forget everything they saw the next day. Whereas if they see one of my shows that really speaks to a problem that they have had, like, you know, my last show, How to Really Love a Woman, is about my own journey through cunnilingus and body acceptance and shame, or Lust and Marriage, which is about having an open marriage. They see something they really personally relate to, and it 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 makes a difference in how they experience the that show. And I remember uh in your first show, I want to say, or your first inviting desire, the mm-hmm. one you did, the first one you did, you uh, devised with other people. Yeah. I think it was that one where you talked about how, and one of the things that I feel like has driven dance, dance naked productions and makes it appealing still is that, you know, people think about sex like all the time. You know, that's really what we want to talk about all the time. Yeah. You know, and it's like making theater around this. Uh, facet of our lives that everybody, not everybody, but like, you know, most people love or, they, or like, or, or, or they want to be exciting in their lives, mm-hmm. you know, um, instead of depression or white men behaving badly or <laughs> uh, all these other things that, that we're used to making art around, yeah. you know, you made art around something that everybody is like really into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inviting Desire was... The reason I I wanted to do that show so badly was because the topic of desire felt so fraught to me that I grew up really hiding my desire. The idea that somebody would know that I I was attracted to them or had a crush on them or that I was horny or anything like that felt so shameful. And I don't know really where that shame comes from specifically. I mean, I grew up in a very liberal household. I didn't I don't feel like I was shamed for my sexuality, but but I was very embarrassed by that and I wanted to I really wanted to unpack it and explore it and and discover what desire meant for me beyond being desirable which is kind of where I feel like a lot right. of women get stuck right yeah. right so I'm so and I, I feel like you've done such a, a great job and I've and I've told you this before that I like admire you and I admire the work that you've done and I admire this view of the world that you have 
Um, so you have all this going on. You have your own theater company going on. It actually means something to people. And but you come back to straight theater, and you come back to hot and throbbing. Yeah, you know, which actually, like uh, to what you just said just a few minutes ago, explores some of those very same themes. It about, really does. It mm-hmm. really does. This show was pivotal, pivotal for me in my life. I th- I would say hot and throbbing really changed my life. So if you want me to give you a little background on how I came to this show, yeah, fire um, away. So I think I was in my mid to late 20s. I want to say probably around 27. So 20 years ago, uh, Open Circle Theater in Seattle uh, was holding auditions. And I was invited to audition. And the funny thing is, is just side note story, is the day that I had auditioned for that show, I had <laughs> I had accidentally bought cocaine from a f- <laughs> A friend. And I thought, I know, I know. I thought I was buying marijuana. It turned out I bought cocaine and then I didn't know what to do with it. And I had it for months and months. And one day I was going to clean the house and I was like, I know I will motivate myself by trying out cocaine. (laughs) So I did. I rolled up a dollar bill (laughs) like you do. And I snorted a line of cocaine <sighs> and I sat on the futon and I thought, OK, let's see what happens. And I, the first thing that I noticed was that my nose was running into my mouth, which was gross. And I was horny, which wasn't that unusual. And so I was like, eh, cocaine, big deal. But then I get a phone call from a friend who's like, hey, aren't you supposed to be here at this audition? So I race down open circle. I haven't read the play. I haven't prepared anything. And I read for this part called voiceover. And the the monologue that I read was super raunchy. And I did one reading for the director. And I literally in the in the lobby of the theater was like trying to surreptitiously ask people like, so so what is this play about? Do you know what this play? And because uh, I didn't want to look like a total asshole. But uh, so I do one reading uh, and the director says, OK, thanks. That's good. And then I went home and I had a meltdown because I thought I have ruined my career because I did cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) But lo and behold, I get cast in this part. And the funny thing was, is having not read the play, I thought that the voiceover was literally a voiceover until I read the play and I realized, no, she's a stripper in a cage and she's on stage the entire time. And I had this complete like shock because in no way did I ever think of myself as being the kind of actress who would get cast as a stripper. Uh, for the for the listening audience who cannot see me, I am, um, I'm just going to say chubby and have an A cup. And so the idea of portraying a stripper, I just thought no one will believe that. And it was so embarrassing to me. I had never played a role anything remotely like this. I mean, my whole theatrical history to this point was I was the fat, funny girl. I was Aunt Eller. I was was a witch, you know, but I was never a character that was sexual. And so... You know, but I am an actor. So I studied strippers. I went to strip clubs. I uh, there was a drag queen named Glamazonia who taught me how to draw in cleavage so it would look like I had tits. And um, and that was how I came to this show. And it really changed my self-perception quite a bit. That is amazing. I don't I don't know if I knew some of that. Mm-hmm. Um so with all that, like in Hot and Throbbing is very funny a lot of times, mm-hmm. um, but there are also times when it's really dark. It's really dark. You know, um, what do you think brought you back to doing it again? I think it's a brilliant play. I really do. I think that it's, you know why is it so nuanced? It's really, it, I think it's easy for people to think about sexual violence as cut and dried sort of black and white like you know if somebody abuses you 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 call the police or you get out of the house or you get a restraining order or you know and and it's it's really difficult to understand that there is a lot of muddiness around desire and attraction um and eroticism i think that the thing that's really interesting in this play is that and I and I really noticed it coming back to it the second time, is that there is a a mythology around the eroticism of being taken, that you know as a woman, 
you want to be taken by somebody strong and they 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 want you so much they're going to just take what they want and have their way with you uh and i personally you know grew up with that kind of mythology in my head and for for many years particularly as a young woman i had rape fantasies i had you know the cop pulls me over and can't help himself fantasies and and i think that when i when i was rereading hot and throbbing this time what i found so compelling was how she paula vogel threads together the desire that uh, charlene feels still for her ex-husband despite the fact that he is abusive you know with her fear and and that it isn't black and white it, and it is it is complex and it is nuanced and even like there was a a monologue that i i read for the audition where the voiceover is is drafting this fantasy because that's really what she does is she she's continually drafting the fantasies in charlene's head and and the fantasy is you know being put up against the wall by a cop and you know it's like he spreads her legs and he penetrates her with his will and and i think that when i was in my 20s i i saw that as sort of purely hot purely erotic hmm. and this time i was really aware hmm. of the violence threaded throughout it and and it it gave me an even greater respect for the play sure Sure. Do you are you saying that you think is, is that a kind of a societal conditioning? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think now in my forties, I'm I'm much more aroused by consent and kindness and control over my own body, which does not mean I don't like to be taken and thrown up against a wall. But I really want to have that negotiation first. I want to feel safe. Even if like there's what's called consensual non-consent, right? But at the time when I was in my 20s, I didn't know about the consensual part. I, I, I just thought, you know, ooh, non-consent, hot. And I think what we're learning hmm. as a culture is that there's so much trauma in our culture already around sex that that safety is the first requirement, that Women and I think men too, and and you know people all along the gender spectrum, need to feel safe first and foremost, and then you know you can you can negotiate beyond that. Absolutely, there are people out there for whom that is not true. You know, their kink is fear or anxiety or whatever it is. But I think for the most part, and you know, I've I've gotten to talk to a lot of people about their sexuality because you know when I tour and I'm doing my solo shows, people come up to me after the show and they tell me their stories, mm -hmm. and and what I hear over and over again from women in particular, but also from men, is that piece about safety. Is has been the missing piece for them that they didn't realize how important that was. Hmm. Uh, so you feel like, um, like young women mm -hmm. of today, uh, is that? Uh, do you think that's a requirement for them, or or is, or does that have to do with like a person's own age? Like when I'm in my twenties, I'm more attracted by this thing, but now that I get older, I'm not. Or has is the is the paradigm? I think the shifting. paradigm's shifting. I think that because. Uh, I, I think where that, that fantasy for me came from was not wanting to own my own desire. Like I talked about, you know, I was so embarrassed sure. about it or ashamed of it, right. right? And so the only fantasy that really works is having somebody take you against your will, right? And, huh. and I think now there is a growing movement towards agency, that you get to own your own sexuality, that you get to make decisions about it, um, that you are not... Uh, just relying on somebody else to tell you what to do and how to do it. And you just, you know, follow directions. Mm -hmm. And you feel like hot and throbbing helps point us in that direction then. I, I do. Good. Cause I was, I was a little worried when I, when I read it again, that some of the stuff uh, that was in it felt like we all know that now. Yeah. Like we all know women stay in relationships. They shouldn't. Right. We all know that uh, yeah. the guy, um, commits an act of violence and then he apologizes and she falls for it and then he abuses her again and that this is a dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was I was wondering like, you know, is this place still topical? Yeah. 
for yeah. the 21st century? You know, in the in the Me Too era, do women already know this? I think that they, yeah, I think we have a lot more knowledge now uh, than we did when this play first came out. But it didn't feel, it doesn't feel dated to me because it's still something we're going through. It's not like the Me Too movement happened and we all went, oh, bing. You right. know, sexual violence is you know, dissolved. It hasn't. And what I think is so important about this play is that Charlene is smart. She's sex positive. She's, you know, self-aware. And she still gets caught. Yeah. And she's even taking steps to protect herself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, definitely. And I think, you know, culturally, yeah, we, we uh, I think, are further along. Like, you know, when this when this place first came out, I think. It, it was probably more shocking than it is now. Um, and and like I said, you know, I was still stuck in a paradigm of th- that it was it was it was hot, you know, that, that this mm-hmm. idea of, of violence was sort of hot. And uh, and I don't think that anymore. Right. Right. And uh, and and Charlene is a creative, mm-hmm. you know, and she like uh, builds these fantasies. I uh, I, I really like that character, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and her plight is a really tough one. Yeah, I think both for the you know for the actor and for the audience yeah. to go through with her. I feel like you root for her, okay. and I feel like there's all the family dynamics that are super complicated, yeah. and and super honest. Um, this show wrecked me every night because you do root for her, and you think she's. I mean, I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's devastating. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, but, you know, uh, I'm glad that you uh, feel like the, the the world is taking steps. I, I think you're dead on, though. And it, it's not a problem that's solved and it's not a problem that's going to be solved. We're not going to, like, you know, reach a destination and then we're finished. Right. No. You know, you know I read something the other day that, that gave me hope, which was that when bad things happen, it's it's so stark that we, we can point to you know, a, a rape, a domestic killing, a, you, you know, racial violence. And and it, it, it makes us think progress hasn't been made. But we can. But the thing is, is that when good things happen, we don't hear about them and that that is a slower growth and and that we are making progress. It's just not as stark. It's not headlines. Uh, so, you know, I'm taking this course right now in African-American history and it's every week it's devastating. Like there's there's new things that I'm learning, new revelations. But but it does feel like the arc of justice is be- or, you know, is bending. Um, and, you know, we started in, you know, I don't know, the with the arrival of slave ships and now we're in the 1960s. And so. And it's been really interesting to see, like, okay, okay, even as as horrific as it is that there is progress. And I, and that's how I feel about uh, gender violence and about uh, sexual liberation, that it is – we are making progress. I mean, it's funny. Like, I'm watching uh, The Umbrella Academy right now, mm-hmm. and there's this one character – who uh, is, you know, married in the 60s, you know, um, she has a typical Texas marriage. And I think about, you know, how, uh, you know, she has no voice whatsoever in that society of, you know, um, uh, nobody's interested in whether or not her marriage is working out for her, her dreams and Mm -hmm. um, fantasies are being fulfilled or that she could have what she could want anything outside of, uh, you know, probably even from her friends and family. You know, there's nobody there who's wondering about those things. You know, her whole world should be her husband and her child, and that, and that should be enough for her. You know, and so I did, you know, and, but, you know, I, I feel like uh, I'll see if I can have you back after November 4th and see if you feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. You I know? would love to talk about the, you know, on the other side of <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, no. Um, uh, we are about at time, um, but I want to hear, does Dance Naked Productions have anything coming up? Well, I'm working on turning my show into a Zoom show. Uh, so I've, uh, I'm Which working on uh, How to Really, Really, Really Love a Woman. Uh, as you know, I was supposed to be in Edinburgh right now uh, premiering that show or doing the UK premiere. Um, and I've rolled over my fees to next summer. But I figured in the interim, 
I would I would develop into an a Zoom show so I can, you know, develop a global audience, as they say. So I'm doing that. But the really exciting thing that I'm doing is <laughs> I'm creating a speed dating event series for sex positive people called Spinner. And I am so excited about it. I'm because, you know, it really is what I love to do, which is to get people to talk about sex. So it 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 gets people together, you know, meeting and, and talking to each other about just, you know, life stuff. And then and then the second half is more intimate conversations. And so I'm launching that next week. So uh, let me be clear, uh, a little bit more clear on this. Mm-hmm. So speed dating. Yeah. And but you are going to have people talk specifically about sex. Yes. Because <laughs> why do we... What actually... could go wrong? <laughs> I know. My, um, it's uh, speed dating meets soul mating meets adult conversating. Mm-hmm. So it's for people who want to fall in love get, love, get laid, and have fun. But I guess if everybody knows what's up, that's... Right. That's what, you know, like anybody who shows up, they're down to talk about... Right. Great. Hopefully. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> as always, as always, all the stuff you do, I always watch from a distance and I always think, uh, thank God somebody is out there doing that. And like that job in particular, you know. Thank um, you. So I, I appreciate you. That was Eleanor O'Brien. And when we return, Cayenne. I'm Josie Seed, one of the mentors in Profile Theater's community profile by and for black women. Do you want to cultivate your own creative voice and use writing as a springboard for conversation and fellowship? Check out Community Profile, an affinity space exclusively for black women that offers community building through monthly writing workshops with award-winning writers and exceptional teachers. There is something undeniably powerful about exploring one's own creative voice in a dedicated affinity space just for us, by us. Due to COVID-19, we aren't meeting in person at this time, but We are meeting online and have found it to be a rich experience for participants. The program is 100% free and 0% pressure. You'll meet people like you of all ages and backgrounds who are also there to work on their craft, share their stories, listen to yours, and together find a little bit of wisdom, support, and love. For more information, go to our website, profiletheater.org, and click on the Community Profile tab and see why one recent participant called this program a life changer. This is Satellite, and we are back with Cayenne. So I am here with Cayenne. Cayenne is a woman who used to work in the sex industry, but has since moved on with her life and is now a a mother and a therapist. Um, Cayenne, tell me something about your life in the sex industry. Um, how was it back then? And, um, how did you move on from there? You know, I, for me, it was great. Um, and I, I worked as a stripper and I did a couple of other things for about 15 years. Uh, but I had the, the distinct privilege of working at a peep show that was, um, you know, largely feminist in its orientation. It was still, you know, owned as a family business. It was the lusty lady. So it wasn't immune to all of our systems of oppression, but it was protected in many, many ways. And so um, that informed my experience of feeling safe and like I was doing it from a place of choice and personal exploration. So when I did it, it was great. And then... I shifted out of it. I should say that actually I always had other employment and was doing other things while I did it. So I wasn't dependent on it per se. And so when I wanted to leave, I could leave. And the transition from it has been fine. I do other things. It's it's good. What was your motivation to get into that industry in the first place? Um... You know, I think it actually was just part and parcel of a broader sexual uh, exploration. I was coming out as queer. I had just graduated from college and had moved back to the Bay Area and was dating women for the first time and was dating multiple people for the first time, was um, getting into kink and SM and polyamorous relationships and... I had a lover 
um, an older woman, my first female lover, who had also been a sex worker at some point. And you know the the very special thing that happens when you're with somebody who sort of can perceive something in you that you haven't quite caught yourself? And she just took a look at me at one point and she was like, oh, this is going to happen. And, you know, again, I said I had the blessing of doing it in a safe way. You know, I thought about it for a year. I got books about it. I researched it. I studied it. And it, it really felt like an edge to cross. Like it's into a whole other territory of social taboo. And after I had like thought about it and read about it, one of my favorite books was Whores and Other Feminists, um, or Real Live Nude Girl, um, Jill Nagel and Carol Queen. Um, and I just, just reading about women who were doing it from a determined and empowered place and kind of falling on the side of the feminist debate that this is my body, this is my choice. It doesn't negate the fact that there's so many social forces that are problematic about the sex industry, but there are reasons and valid reasons I want to do this. And I was, I finally was just, I, I'm never going to know unless I try it. I can quit if I don't like it, but let me at least try it. And I tried it and I really, really liked it. Um, yeah. That's great. Um, because I feel like Charlene in Hot and Throbbing very much is moving into the sex industry for what sounds like a lot of the same reasons. You know, she's, she's actually already a mother. Um, at the time of the play, uh, she has two teenage children, um, but she's leaving her husband. And even though she is a mother with two children, it still feels like her uh, uh, moving into the erotica industry. And she's a writer, not a stripper. Um, but her moving into the erotic industry is still her like reclaiming her own sexuality. And he and he and she and her ex husband actually fight over this in the play. So I um, uh, I think that's a super great trajectory that you just outlined. Um, and, and makes a lot of sense to to people who will um, read the play. Uh, tell me, you mentioned um, Lusty the Lusty Lady was a relatively feminist organization um, in the stripping industry compared to other strip clubs and whatnot. I take it. Um, how so? So, and I, I will emphasize, excuse me, that I think this is isolated and distinct to the Lusty, um, and also that my experience is. Uh, very limited. Um, so the, w there's several differences that um, were evident at the Lusty. And the Lusty in San Francisco no longer exists, and that's the one that I worked at. But first and foremost, it was a just its the, the layout of the venue, the structure of the venue. So it was a peep show instead of a typical lap dancing club. And because it's a peep show, it, in some ways it could be more graphic and more explicit. It permitted uh, full nudity. Um, but that also meant that you couldn't have alcohol. So it wasn't that I never dealt with drunk customers, but I didn't feel like I was competing with alcohol uh, with customers in sort of their escalated inebriation. Um, and that made it feel safer, certainly. Um, another factor is there was no hustling um, in this sort of traditional way without a barrier. Um, so the Lusty had two functions, well, actually three. So there were a lot of, um, porn booths where customers could go in and watch porn. Then there was a live show, which was a stage, um, that had several doors with maybe 12 booths surrounding the live show stage and customers would go into a booth. The door would close behind them. They put money in a slot and the screen would go up and you could see dancers dancing on stage. And those dancers were all nude with, you know, costumes, um, but all behind glass. And so because there was no hustling in the typical lap dancing sense, dancers weren't competing with each other for money. So that means that you sort of equalize the the playing field, if you will. So some of the, the things that reinforce commercial beauty standards um, that may sort of make it hard between dancers in lap dancing clubs just weren't a factor. And dancers were really able to have each other's back. Like if customers were derisive or rude or inappropriate, a dancer could just call on the phone and support staff and say, I want the customer in booth number three removed. And that would happen immediately. The other aspect of the Lusty was the private pleasures booth, 
where you could have one-on-one shows where you could activate a microphone and customers would come in and you could do a personalized erotic show with a customer. And it was a sex show and you could fuck yourself with sex toys. Um, you could play out a fantasy. You, you could actually be very interactive. So those were the kind of the three things that happened at the Lusty that were unique to it. And then the thing that I think made it safer um, to your question about being feminist also, so all of those things you could tailor and have control and agency over, um, which was fun and great. And also allowed, at least for me, um, capacity to explore my own sexuality and also my own sense of boundaries and limits. Um, I really got very, very good at what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not. And I I could go on far there, but just to answer your question about like what made it feminist, the lusty lady was also unionized. And then, and so we had a lot of power and we were able to secure certain basic rights. Like we could say, absolutely. Like it finally got admitted into one of the union contracts. And if I'm remembering correctly, might've been a precipitating reason for the unionization was um, absolutely no photography. Right. So customers had up until that point, there were some booths that were, um, one-way mirrors and customers would come in and film and that, that went out with the unionization, if I'm remembering right. The other, and, and then the Lusty ultimately became a co-op. So it was a worker-owned stripper, a unionized worker-owned strip club, which was great. So, you know, again, I would say like, Feminism all by itself doesn't eliminate patriarchy or commodification or white supremacy or the hazards of capitalism, the harms of ha- capitalism. But there were definitely different factors that that made it better and safer. The last one I'll say, to your point about feminism and safer, is one of the biggest fights that I was aware of that was happening in San Francisco in the lap dancing clubs was that the the club owners were imposing stage fees, which then meant the pressure for dancers to make more and more money in order to actually be able to work. And there wasn't a protected space. So basically that brought in so many harms and so many problems with respect to, you know, uh, (laughs) depression, desperation, limitation, competition, Um, and then a reduction, like more and more pressure to do more and more things for less money, which then, you know, tips into non-consensual activity and personal safety and rape and yeah, all kinds of really, really hard stuff, which was not operating at the Lusty. And again, reinforces the difference between working in the sex industry from a place of choice and quote exploration versus having to, and, and not having protection. Right. Uh, it's, it's, that's, you know, it's also super interesting because Charlene, uh, is writing for a feminist, uh, erotic film company and like, and that's what they're, they're called, uh, Gino Productions. And it feels like they're trying to offer like the same kind of, uh, protection and, um, like a safe place for women who are working in the sex industry, as it sounds like the Leslie lady was trying to provide, um, but um, and here we are, fifteen years later, and um, you're still like, even though like you you you've moved on, you still don't want to use your real name. Can you tell me something about the stigma around women um, in the sex industry and what your feelings are about that, and um, how you think the world still needs to improve? Yeah, I mean. I mean, it's, it's true in my process, even if you think about that, like it took me a year to think about doing it and to decide if I wanted to, I had a lot of reservations and cautions about it. And I almost said this a minute ago, like one of the things I, I, I said this thing of like, if I do it, I can quit, but you can never not have done it. And so one of the things that was clear to me is I will never be a politician, like hypothetically as just a marker, like I could, you know, I can get on a stage and I can have a debate or I can do an interview about, um, you know, the ideas and the ideologies around feminism and the sex industry. But 
once you take a particular kind of stand like that, you've, you've, or done something like that in your life, I think you've tagged yourself, um, and located yourself in a particular way that it just, it's one of those choice points like, oh, wow, I have now eliminated some particular things that I'm going to then be able to do in my life. Um, that being said, I do want to just give a call out to Victoria Woodhull, who is, was actually a, a sex worker way, way many, you know, centuries back in our history who, um, was a politician. I think she was the first woman who ran for president. I do hope I'm quoting myself correctly, but she was also a prostitute. Um, and it was kind of a fun point in my own personal history that my father gave me a book about her. Um, and it sort of gave me some, some basis and some information about the legacy of women who were trying to be empowered about their sexuality and not just comply with the norms. Um, okay. So your question, I get, I get a little, um, I was just asking about the stigma and and what you think is still around. Yeah. So I think, and to your point about using my, my stage name, um, you know, there's a way that our, our culture has, um, a lot of really complex and complicated feelings about sex to begin with, and then sexual violence and, um, and what's, what's right and what's wrong and what's acceptable. And as I think I was saying, like, I, I felt nervous about it. I felt nervous when I became a stripper, when I became a sex worker. And before I became a professional, I felt fine about being out about it. I felt fine to talk widely and openly and sort of let myself be an example. And then when I got older and I realized actually that, um, you know, there was risk to my livelihood about it. And I have more people who are dependent on me. I'm more careful. And, um, and, and particularly in the therapy field, and I don't think this is not true in our broader culture, but in the therapy field, there's a lot of complicated feelings folks have about whether or not you're credible. I, I would say like, there's like, are you colluding? Are you participating in your own oppression um, by being a sex worker? Are you contributing to the very forces and participating and reifying the very forces that are oppressing you? And I want to say that's it's it. I was going to say it's like a fine line or it's a dotted line. Like it's not it's not clear cut. Like I'm, I'm very clear that while I was working at the Lusty. And being a sex worker, I was participating in the systems that make money off of commodification. I, I can't actually say that I was absolutely not. Um, I think the way I thought about it and worked with it is that um, there were a lot of benefits and gains. I was definitely in my own agency and my own determination about it. Um, but almost there are so many things we're doing all the time that are fraught and complicated decisions and the way it panned out and weighed out for me was that it, it was fine. Um, but I think, I think it's, it's hard and that's an ongoing debate. It's the feminist debate about porn and how do you make it purely good and fine and safe for women? I don't think there are so many things we can't do that about in in our complicated cultural context. So to that point at this juncture, because our world hasn't gotten, um, sound enough and how it navigates those things, it's still personal risk to be out. Right. Right. Um, but it sounded like, uh, your work at the lusty lady was an empowering moment in your life. Like you felt like you came out stronger because of it. Uh, Am I correct about that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I thought about while I was sitting in the private pleasures booth was I actually really do care about social harms. I really, really wanted to understand sexism. I really, really wanted to understand patriarchy. And I felt like I went into the belly of the beast to do it in a way. Like, let me just 
strip everything off, if you will, and like get into a a face-to-face naked tussle with it. And what can I learn about myself? And what can I learn about men? And what can I learn about the system? And it was a safe, suspended space to do that. And it was fun. And it let me... Oh, goodness. Um, Enjoy sex on my own terms. Like, it was very, very empowering to effectively be having virtual sex with strangers um, where it was, like, absolutely my call at any juncture. And because it was a financial transaction, and in some ways it was easier because I, okay, again, the privilege, economic privilege that I wasn't absolutely financially dependent on it. It meant that I could take or leave a show. And in some ways, because I didn't have emotions tangled up with any particular customer, it really let me just be engaged, driven by what is my pleasure? What am I having fun responding to about this person? Um, What do I want to try? What do I not want to try? What are my limits? And I could throw somebody out at any point. And what happened was, is I, I got less and less mad at men who were inappropriate because all I had to do was say no and they would be gone. And that allowed me to like cultivate ever more strategies and creativity in how I engaged with men who had problematic behavior, which then gave me more compassion. Like sometimes men would just come in really, really angry and treat me terribly. And it became kind of a game. I had been a waitress and a restaurant manager for many, many years before this. And I had kind of used to approach my job as like, how can I give somebody a good day? And when I was working with men at The Lusty Lady, my it sort of grew that orientation to how do I find the way into this person to to soften their own humanity towards themselves? Because if they're so pissed at me what's going on with them like if they're cap- if they're coming in and paying money to treat me like shit how bad is their life <laughs> like honestly like so like and you know it was amazing to see s- some men soften i mean we have this thing about sex with men they have to be hard and virile and all powerful and it's like what would happen with men who would soften or cry. Like there were men who came in and cried and it, it let me see to your point of like, it was a positive experience. It was a positive experience for me personally in my own sexuality, but it was also a positive experience for me holistically in understanding how men are also really harmed and, you know, limited and constricted in ways that I think then replicate in negative ways worldwide for by sexism by patriarchy i was like oh you you may be getting the material privileges on the top of the system but your humanity is is really slashed in some very devastating ways you don't know how to relate um you don't know how to like have compassion for yourself or other people how hard is it going to be to have authentic connection and sex then So yeah, it taught me a lot. It gave me access to learning some things that I don't know if I would have been able to learn other ways. And then, because I kind of worked through some of my triggers and got to learn some additional lessons and some new strategies, um, I kind of felt like I was doing sex therapy, if you will. And, you know, that's not, that's useful in my current job, I have to say. Well, thank you very much, Cayenne, for your, all your information um, and for your compassion for uh, humanity and for all the stuff and the information that you shared with us. Really great work. That was Cayenne, and when we return, Low Steel. Now quiet, sweet sisters, and I will tell you again, this is the true story of the seduction of Marie Therese, the Queen of France. It started with a box, a gift from the Queen's cousin, Monsieur de Beaufort. You see now, mi primo gave me a gift. Look at the size of the box. The scale. 
scandal, oh, the scandal that was to follow this queen, the princess of Spain. Ay, Dios mío, es un African. A little one at that. Look, Louis, he's fantastic. Isn't he lovely? No? <laughs> Come here. Come, sit by me. In the king's chair. And there it began, in the king's chair, with a painter reshaping her likeness, molding that haphazard smile into an enigmatic smirk, with the image of Nabo lightly drawn in, uncommitted, a mercurial impression barely perceivable. Las Meninas, a possibly true story by Lynn Nottage, directed by Don Monique Williams, is available for streaming December 2nd through January 5th, 2020 to members of Profile Theatre On Air. Become a member and listen at profiletheatre.org. This is Satellite, and we are back with Low Steel. Welcome, Lauren Steele. Hello, hello. For those who might be listening, Lauren Steele is uh, one of my favorite people on the planet and one of the artists that I most admire. And I'm super happy to have you on Satellite Beyond the Page. Thanks for coming. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Lauren, you are on hiatus from New York, correct? I am. Um, how has it been getting back to the Portland lifestyle? Um, strangely enough, I'm happier than I've ever been. Um, I think having done college and then having gone to New York and coming back in a time where there's very little expectation to be like productive and creative has been very helpful. Sorry about my dog. That's okay. Has been very helpful like because. Okay, good. Um, yeah, it's been very helpful because I think without that pressure, I've been more creative and productive than I've ever been. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And I like nat- I like being able to go outside and interact with nature and walk my dog and, you know. I mean, that's know. what Oregon is good for, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's like I don't have to interact with any of the annoying people of Portland. So it's like, it's like the perfect place to be right now. <laughs> I, I, I keep telling people, I'm like, uh, you know... Quarantine kind of agrees with me. I enjoy it. Quiet is kept. <laughs> yeah. I'm having a good time. <laughs> right on. So uh, you said um, since you got back, it's been uh, an extra fertile period for you. What all have you been working on? Um, I've been writing a lot of music. Um, I just did a live stream two days ago of uh, all original music. Um the May Day live stream, and that was really cool. Um, I'm shooting a music video this weekend uh, for my song coming out called Nighttime Friends, and um, I'm hoping to put out a new album of some of the music that I played the other day. And I'm writing a like a solo performance, one-person musical sort of thing. Sounds like a very Lauren Steele-type project. Mm-hmm. And I've been roller skating. And roller skating. Uh-oh, <laughs> what? It'd be good for your core, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell me, when uh, when the young people talk about releasing an album nowadays, what do, what do they mean? Um, I don't know what the young people mean, <laughs> but what I mean <laughs> is about probably seven or eight songs i think that's kind of in between you know do we call it an ep do we call it an album but i i think i want to go for the full album this time um and where will we be able to find that you think hopefully everywhere all the typical places itunes spotify you know all the big guys now lauren uh i know like um your roots are like in the blues uh what would you call your music nowadays I used to be pretty, I mean, I, when I was really getting into songwriting uh, and around the time I released Insecurities, I think my influences were, you know, Lauren Hill, NDRE, a lot of the neo Insecurities, though, great song. Thank you, yeah. Um, yeah, basically the ladies of neo-soul were my primary influences. But I've been listening to a lot of, like, 
70s jazz and some funk and stuff. Like who? And so, uh, <laughs> I've been listening to uh, Steely Dan a lot. Uh, their lyrics are just incredible and their sense of humor is incredible. And so I, I think I'm taking myself a lot less seriously than I have in the past. And I'm just, I think uh, I'm focusing on joy and having a good time more than trying to lead the revolution right now because I'm tired. <laughs> well, you know, um, sometimes joy and having a good time is the revolution. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, Hot and Throbbing. Uh, wildly different project than what you're used to, am I right? Yes. <laughs> How did I've that never come about? done any composing. Um, I'm excited. I think, like, it's interesting because um, when I'm writing music at home, I don't have to, like, impress or satisfy anybody but myself. Um, and so, you know, I can write little goofy melodies and have it be imperfect until I'm able to get into a studio. But with this, it is all my responsibility and I have to, you know, it's not just what I feel in the moment. I have to fit it to the script. Um, and so that's, that's been fun to try to like think more about the science of music and how to evoke certain, um, feelings about certain themes and certain genres that um, I'm not as a, accustomed to. And so that's been really fun. And the show is uh, heavy and uh, fascinating. So I'm excited about it. What are some of the main themes that had you, like had, had your wheels turning while you were working on it? Um, I think this idea that we have about women who stay in um, abusive relationships and the sort of blame that we put on them, or even when it isn't blame, I think uh, the confusion we have about why they might stay um, is really striking to me. And I, I try to be intentional about uh recognizing that you never know the whole of somebody's relationship or the whole of somebody's experience of somebody. Um, and so even when I was writing the music, this melody came that, you know, I think primarily I was working on, you know, the sort of like sexy underscore music and like scary underscore music because it's a show about um, abuse. Uh, or one of the themes is abuse. Um, but this melody came to me that was sweet um, and felt like love. And so I think that's representative of the fact that like there is love within that. There is connection, there's uh, history there. and so and I and I see that in the way that you've um, you've performed is that we have to like, we have to like him. We have to see why he's lovable and why she might stay that's otherwise it's boring right you know? right that's for the whole yeah um and it's and uh and i feel like um everything you're saying i really feel like that is a, a hallmark of your music and your poetry you know is um how complex things are and there's never like a, uh, a one thing that you like like one color you can paint the whole relationship the whole person with yeah you know you deal with whole people um, in whole relationships, uh, living in an imperfect world, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but a lot of times the imperfections are where we find the beauty. You yeah, know? definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that um, you'll uh, keep doing this kind of composing? I would love to. Um, and it's inspired me to like, you know, gather the tools to do so and gather the education to do so um, with a little bit more agency because this is fun and it's, but it, it has been a challenge. And so I want it maybe next time to be a little bit less of a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the music that, you, that you're making, like like the music that's coming to you for Hot and Throbbing, is it wildly different from the music you usually make? Or the kind of stuff that's going to wind up on your album? I wouldn't say so. Um I think the main, the primary difference is that I'm very wordy 
and lyrical. Um, and so it's it's been fun to sort of um, just focus on the music and just focus on the melody and the harmonies. But I also am I'm heavy on harmony as well in my song. So, you know, two, three part harmony almost in every song. So it's been fun to sort of uh, take the lyrics out and just explore the rhythms and the music and and tell a story through vocals, but without lyrics. Oh, so you're singing. Yeah, I'm doing like a little bit of like, you know, vocal soundscapes and oohs and ahs and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, nothing lyrical. That sounds amazing. Uh, so it's a big departure then from what you usually do? Like you said, take the lyrics out. You didn't like write the music with lyrics and then take the lyrics out. You just... No, I'm just uh, trying to say as much as I can without words. So right. I'm, just, I'm writing right. without words. Right. Um, you can tell I know nothing about music. But I, but <laughs> well, I don't really either. I just be in my room making stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, though. Come on. You like literally like grew up in music. Well, yeah, but it's so interesting that I think because I grew up in music, I don't really have that much of an education because I never needed it because it's like telepathic in my household. So we never had to, find, you know, have the um, the language to communicate so it's been interesting collaborating with other people and like oh my gosh i have to learn how to speak to musicians that aren't my dad and my mom and my <laughs> sister because they just inherently know what i'm going to do and what i need um so yeah i'm really not very musically educated at all and i that's kind of part of what i'm exploring now is trying to get those tools and trying to educate myself a little bit it's kind of interesting it's like when you grew up with english and like people who learn English actually know more about the language than you right. do. Cause I don't know anything about the English. I just speak it. Yeah. That's the perfect analogy. <laughs> that, that makes it make so much sense. Yeah. Right. Cause I always felt kind of embarrassed about that, you know, that I really do not know a lot. <laughs> like, um, I just do this. <laughs> I do that. It's about the feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Laura's like, I don't know. I, I didn't learn it in books. I learned it on the streets, baby. <laughs> uh huh. Street smart. Yeah. How about the violence in the play? Like, I don't tend to think of you as like an angry spirit, you yeah. know. Um, but there's a lot of you know, and, and you know, and they used to always tell us that like anger is never the first emotion. Um, and you know, there's uh, jealousy and fear. Um, and like resentment and shame, of course. Uh, is it uh, tough to write in modes like that? No, those are the modes that I I think most commonly write in. I'm a I'm a uh, <laughs> I'm the kind of person who copes through music and like had a hard time writing about my joy for a long time, and so it's it's I think the reason I'm not an angry spirit is because I have music. Uh, to sort of sort through all of those feelings. So I think it is, it's it's pretty easy for me to write about the dark stuff. You think this, uh, having worked on this show is going to put you on a different path with your music? Does it make you think about different things or different kinds of music coming to your head because of this show? Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff I've written for, I'm like, wait, hold on, I want to keep this. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I think, you know, exploring different facets of like a career too and like considering composing a little bit and uh writing for projects that aren't just my own mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. yeah uh composing for uh more than one instrument as well or i don't know like bigger pieces with see like i said you can tell i don't know anything about music <laughs> <laughs> but like i get everything here because this is how i talk about music okay, too great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, certainly like finding out where it different, you know, because I in the past, my style has been pretty acoustic. And so it's usually just me and my guitar and right. however many layers of vocals. And so it's been fun to um, play with bass and play with, you know, some drum tracks and, uh, you know, all the stuff, the trumpets and sometimes strings, you know. Well, uh, thank you, Lo Nicole Steele, um, and thanks for being a shining light in the world. And you know, I always root for you, and I hope thank to you have are. you back on here again. And I hope we get to work together again. I really hope so. I really hope so. All right, then, folks. That is Lauren Nicole Steele, um, one of my favorite people on the planet. Peace out. Hi, Poppy. You're not going crazy.
losing sense of senseless time. And that is a wrap. Thank you to all of our guests. Thank you to Eleanor O'Brien, Cayenne, and Lo Steele for appearing on this edition of Satellite Beyond the Page. I'd also like to give a shout out to Jamie M. Ray, Lion Producer, Robert A. K. Gagno, Sound Engineer, and Sam Mowry in the Willamette Radio Workshop, where we recorded Eleanor's interview. And all of this was recorded in Portland, Oregon, on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kaflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them. And we honor their descendants who live on. And that is as real as can be. And I am Bobby Bermea, and this has been Satellite Beyond the Page. One love and peace out. Someone thought about you twice today. Look how much you've grown now Finding comfort in your own space Give yourself Episode 3 for the 25th time The way is alright Give yourself grace